0: The news is out. 2020 saw a 30% rise in murders nationwide. 2021 isn't looking so good either. Some want us to turn back to the aggressive policing of the past. But is there a better way to stem the tide of gun violence? What actually works? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener supported project become a member at patreon.com slash criminal injustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your big time justice nerd and guide to all things in the criminal legal system. And yes, still somehow holding on to that super sweet day job as a professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Now, the news on crime that broke in September of 2021, I'm sure you remember, was not good. The government released statistics that month on trends in crime in the prior year, 2020. Yes, that's right. It takes them nine months to do this, to the great consternation of my criminologist friends. And that year, 2020, the pandemic year, saw a 30% rise in murders nationwide. The increase in murders was not driven by just a handful of large cities as some smaller spikes have been in the past. It showed up pretty much everywhere and there were worrying signs that 2021 might look bad too. The first seven months of 2021 saw an increase in murders as shown in unofficial unreleased statistics of 16 percent through the first seven months of the year. Now, the headlines that this news inspired were not at all nuanced. Quote, one city ready to explode as U.S. murder rates surge in pandemic, according to Reuters. That city, if you want to know, is Rochester, New York, by the way. Quote, homicides up 30% in the largest increase on record, said The Hill. Now, it is worth noting that this very serious news about murders was accompanied by news that other crimes did not spike. In fact, many crimes continue to show a downward trend, as they have for 20-plus years. That's right, they're continuing to go down property crime, and even some serious violent categories of crime are going down not up. But the news on murders, particularly those by firearms, which were three-quarters of all murders, that's the highest on record, remains very serious and disturbing. Even NPR, using its normally staid tones, took the same approach to what it called a, quote, massive increase. Here's NPR's Cheryl Corley. Listen up.
1: All throughout the year, an alarming increase in homicides left communities, often in lockdown, reeling as officials searched for answers. That was evident at lots of news conferences, as Chicago Police Superintendent David Brown, Los Angeles Police Captain Ahmad Zarkani, and New York's Mayor Bill de Blasio all rolled out dire news.
0: There were 11
2: murders during this time span, and four of those murders were children.
0: In the city, we had 261 homicides. That is 25% increase. This uptick in shootings is something that should worry all New Yorkers, and we've got to stop it. Now, if the headlines were predictable, even more so were some of the calls for action. Many old-school crime fighters came straight out with it. Forget about bail reform. Forget about progressive views on prosecution and all that stuff. Let the police get out there and get back to doing what they know how to do grabbing people, and squeezing, paraphrasing obviously here, bring back broken windows policing, more stop-and-frisk-based enforcement, as it was used so successfully in New York by the Giuliani and Bloomberg administrations. Now, personally, I hope people don't take the tough-on-crime-will-make-you-safe bait. We have to do what's actually smart and targeted, and will work to make everyone safe. The idea that toughness or a willingness to trample on the rights of certain people and communities, the idea that that fights crime effectively and over the long term has always been, has been proven to be a false promise. And it obviously ignores the fact that there were immense downsides and costs to these methods of enforcement. And that was especially true in communities of color. So what are the right actions to take now to stop the bloodshed and protect people, all people? What will have a measurable positive effect for everyone and change things for the better in the long run? I'm glad to tell you we have two guests here who can answer those questions. Both of our guests are members of the violent crime working group of the Council on Criminal Justice. The Council is a national organization that works to advance understanding of the criminal justice policy choices facing the nation using facts and evidence. And the Council builds consensus around solutions that enhance safety and justice for all. We have a link to the report of the Violent Crime Working Group up on our website. Our guests are, first, Sierra Bates Chamberlain. She is the Executive Director of Live Free Chicago, Live Free Illinois. Reverend Sierra, who is ordained by the Global Ministries House of Prayer, also serves as Administrator for the denomination Chicago Congregation. Through the Live Free organization, Reverend Sierra works with black churches to create safe, economically viable, and self-sustaining black communities. She is also an adjunct professor at Northeastern University, a mental health professional, and a Just Leadership USA and Leadership Greater Chicago fellow. Our second guest is Thomas Apt. Thomas Abt studies, writes, and teaches about the use of evidence-based approaches to violent crime and public safety. He is Senior Fellow at the Council on Criminal Justice, where he chairs the Violent Crime Working Group and also directed the Council's National Commission on COVID-19 and Criminal Justice. Before joining the Council, Thomas was a Senior Fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School and held leadership positions in the New York Governor's Office and the U.S. Department of Justice. Thomas was our guest here on Criminal Injustice on episode 107 in September of 2019 to discuss his book, Bleeding Out, The Devastating Consequences of Urban Violence and a Bold New Plan for Peace in the Streets. Reverend Sierra Bates-Chamberlain and senior fellow Thomas Abt, welcome to Criminal Injustice.
2: Great to be with you.
1: Thank you.
0: I'm glad. I'm glad to have you both. I, you know, I wonder if you would uh, take a minute and explain a little bit about the working group, uh, what it is, and 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 how you see it, and and how it works. Thomas, you want to hit us with that first?
2: Sure. Uh, the group is uh, 14 or 15 individuals. Uh, I chair the group, uh, drawn from a wide variety of backgrounds: public safety, public health uh, community-based leadership, um, and academia. And I think one of the things that we were trying to do with the council in thinking about this group is, you know, we looked around at the criminal justice conversation that was happening in the country. And I see, um, a lot of law enforcement people talking amongst themselves about violent crime. And I see a lot of academics talking amongst themselves about the same issue. And I see the same thing among activists and advocates. And so our our strategy was, we need to be having that conversation all as one together. And so that's something that uh, we've tried to do and be interested in the Reverend's uh, reverence
0: opinion on how we're doing in that. Reverend Sierra?
1: Yeah, I, I think the group is not, an outstanding job of bringing various perspectives, not only from uh, discipline, but from various uh, parts of the country. Um, and so, it's very interesting yeah. because you have law enforcement, uh, law enforcement, and academia, and then you have folks like me who are. Um, on the community side, um, advocating um, for reallocations of dollars from police and budgets into uh, gun violence prevention strategy. So it's a very interesting mix, but it's needed because we're able to have these conversations um, in a space to where we're able to hear and learn and receive from each other. Uh,
0: I'd like to ask you, Reverend Sierra, you're out in the field in Chicago, but very much a person of the criminal justice policy working space. You work with congregations, with individuals, with organizations. When you focus on gun violence in the communities you serve, what are you seeing?
1: I think now what we see is there's a a lot of desperation. Um, and that's what I would say. When we're um, seeing the number of homicides And I know oftentimes we're talking about Chicago, uh, but we can't leave out the state of Illinois because we uh, work across the state where there are low income um, black communities. We're seeing an increase in the spike in gun violence. And so residents are either hurting because there's a loved one that they know that's been impacted by gun violence or they're victims of homicides or shootings. Um, or you have residents who are just concerned when there are children, eight-year-olds who are being shot standing on the porch. There's just a real concern for safety, um, and there's a lot of pain um, that's taking place in community. and uh, community members across the state um, are in a, in a state of emergency and looking for real solutions to address um, the harm that's taking place in our community.
0: And is it seem to you that it's worse now than it has been in the past few years?
1: You know, uh, the University of Chicago actually put out some data, um, and it shows that gun violence is at its worst as in Black communities as it has ever been. Wow. So in our opinions, yes, we would say it feels as if it's worse, but there's actually data that points to that it is worse.
0: Thomas, as you look at the picture and you listen to Reverend Sierra, is this uh, a reflection of what we're seeing nationally?
2: Yes. Unfortunately, uh, everything that Reverend Sierra is talking about is playing out in cities, large and small across the country. The vast majority of cities during the pandemic, saw a significant spike in homicides um, and in uh, violent crime generally and unfortunately uh, those uh, that violence is concentrating in the most disadvantaged and disenfranchised communities across the country
0: now that's that term concentrating i really want to talk about that um we talk about violence uh in 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 media and news reports and so forth Uh, in a way that seems to imply almost that everybody's at risk and the whole country is dangerous. But when I read your report, uh, this idea that the violence is really concentrated in certain places and and some people are at much greater risk than others was really clear. Uh, Does that square with what you're seeing either in the data or on the ground, Reverend Sierra?
1: Just going back to the information, I think for years we've uh, noted that the violence is concentrated um, in certain communities. In fact, in Chicago, you can look that most of the violence is taking place in 10 to 15 neighborhoods, and then you can even point to the data where it shows that a lot of the violence is oftentimes happening in a few blocks. Um, so the it, the violence has always been concentrated, and again, when we're even if you make the, the correlation to the the gun violence, but you're also making the correlation to the divestment in community as well. So there's just making that connection to concentration of not only gun violence, but then there's concentration of poverty,
0: poverty and gun violence going hand in hand. You're saying that is an important point that I think is missed when we're just talking about a spike in homicides. We have to see its connection to other social phenomena.
1: Absolutely.
0: So uh, as either of you have talked about this, read about it, you know, I'm sure like me, you've seen uh, various explanations that have been offered for this. Uh, The one thing that that seems to run through all of them is some connection to the pandemic. Uh, in one way or another. How are you seeing either locally or nationally, uh, the way that the pandemic uh, has influenced, and I I don't want to say cause, because we just don't know what the cause is, but the way that the pandemic has influenced this spike in murderous violence, or do you see something else that seems like maybe it's a better bet to be thought of as uh, an influencing factor? Thomas, uh, maybe you first.
2: Sure. Uh, The Violent Crime Working Group that uh, Reverend Sierra and I are both a part of uh, took a hard look at this a few sessions ago, and we produced a bulletin uh, explaining in very concise terms what we know and what we don't know about uh, the relationship uh, between the pandemic, social unrest, and other factors and recent rises uh, in in violent crime, uh, we know that the pandemic is playing a big role uh, in pushing rates of violent crime higher. But it's not always clear exactly high, uh, exactly how. Um, in some instances, you know, um, uh, you know, stay-at-home orders might have actually suppressed violent crime temporarily but other factors may have aggravated violent crime. But I think it's really important to center those people who have always been at the highest risk for, uh, for violent crime and really understand their experience. And you know, those people um, were already um, you know, under great pressure and great strain. They were already marginalized, already alienated. But the pandemic suddenly made all of those already bad things worse. And it's important to understand that, yes, there may have been, uh, because of the pandemic, because of social unrest, there may have been a pullback in some of the more proactive forms of policing. But there was also a dramatic interruption in all of the good community-based work that was happening all of the outreach to these individuals that was happening on, on the behalf of, behalf of the community. Because as we know, it's not just police who are working to reduce violent crime, it's also community groups and others. And so all of that stopped very, very suddenly.
0: Reverend Sierra, does that, does that sort of sound like what you saw as well, that the social supports were disappearing very suddenly?
1: I agree. why I, I do apply there were many groups who were still out on the ground um responding to the pandemic, but there were a lot of supports. And I also just think just naming that uh when we're looking at the numbers again, we we talked about poverty, but then even with the virus, we talked uh we have to name the disparity. Um of uh, there were so right. Uh, right. That the, the black communities were overwhelmingly impacted. Uh, by the virus. So we have to to know that like that had to um, have an impact when you already have traumatized communities. Um, You're adding another layer of trauma on top of communities who are already experiencing, um, again, already experiencing trauma. So uh, I think that had to have played uh, a role uh, whether it was in healthcare, like you said, the services that were being provided, um, whether there was—I uh, know—in the working group, and I actually have the report pulled up where we talked about that. They talked about the strain theory, um, like all of that had to have had um, a play on that. So I, I would definitely agree with Thomas in the working group on um, how the coronavirus dis- um, disproportionately impacted Black communities.
0: So. Again, picking up that wonderful report that you all put out, and it is up on our website, um, when we're talking about this idea of concentrated violence, one of the first points you make is that there are certain kinds of high-impact, shorter-term interventions that we can turn to uh, on the enforcement side. Thomas, what do those look like?
2: Well, there are, I think there are high-impact short-term strategies on the enforcement side and the non-enforcement side. And I think it's important to, uh, to highlight both. But let me just step back. Uh, the working group was created to uh, provide immediate concrete solutions to a really challenging, troubling problem. It wasn't intended to have an abstract discussion or a discussion about what should be done over the long run. Those conversations are extremely important, but that's not what the group was uh, created to do.
0: It's one of the reasons I wanted to have you both here because, uh, as you know, the one thing you'd pick up if you listen to a whole bunch of episodes of this show is concrete right now what can we do? What works? And that's what I saw you both highlighting
2: right so uh and so i just want to point out that while we are identifying those solutions there is broader and longer term thinking that goes beyond those but to answer your question directly uh, the most effective short-term strategies are a combination of law enforcement and non-law enforcement uh, solutions Uh, the non-law enforcement solutions are things like cognitive behavioral therapy things like uh street outreach things like environmental approaches to crime prevention street lights uh remedying blight uh you know uh addressing um vacant lots and abandoned buildings and things like that and hospital-based uh hospital-based intervention programs programs that intervene with the highest risk people and give them things to say yes to as well as to say no to And so on the enforcement side, there's obviously uh, uh, programs that sort of target the highest risk places, hotspots policing and problem-oriented policing, efforts like focus deterrence, which are community that involve community members, but also involve police. But all of these uh, strategies, particularly on the law enforcement side, need to be highly targeted. I think it's really important that when we're talking about law enforcement strategies, that we don't go back to the bad old days of, you know- uh, Amen. Zero tolerance policing, uh, widespread, uh, uh, you know, aggressive measures that really sort of oppress the communities that they were supposedly supposed to help. But you do need a balance of both.
0: Reverend Sierra, uh, you and I were talking before we went on uh, to record this and we were comparing notes at both as uh, uh, residents of Chicago. Um, And uh, I have to wonder, knowing the police culture there, uh, the way I do, what have you seen in terms of receptivity in Chicago, the Chicago area, Illinois, to the the idea that we can't go back to the old policies and, and approaches of the past and we have to have enforcement's got to go along with non-enforcement strategies too. Has that been uh, a message that people are willing to hear now?
1: So I think publicly on on paper, people are willing to hear that. Um, But realistically, I don't think so. And I say that because there's a lot of finger pointing in Chicago um, around like who's responsible for gun violence or even when we're thinking about we're like really moving uh the print of law enforcement from the violence reduction strategies and centering public health approaches if they were really bought into that the investments will follow so the actions are not in alignment with um the voices and i and i and i do want to add because even in the like within the violence reduction strategies. I don't think we need to add more police um, onto the streets. That's, not I mean, it's never been effective, but we do need to figure out why, you know, they will report there's over 50% clearance rate, but that's like with except being exceptionally closed. So we know still in the black communities, there's under a 20% clearance rate. So we may need to figure out what are the detectives doing versus um, policing. So I think there are other... Uh, just to go back to your question, so I just wanted to add that in there. Um, just to go back to your question, I don't think they're really receptive um, to, the, to the changes because the investments uh, will follow and the finger pointing will not exist.
0: That is such an important point. I mean, I want to point out how you talk about looking at the data in a disaggregated way. Uh, that if you looked at it, you know, fifty percent clearance rate. Well, it depends on how you take that apart and what you see in the in the picture of the data when it's pulled apart. It looks very different in the black community. Thomas, did you want to make a point about that?
2: Yeah, I just want to expand on uh, on the point the Reverend made because I think it's really important. Uh, you know, I think that there is this double frustration in many communities. That they feel sort of over policed, yet underprotected. And that, you know, the police uh, seem very willing to, you know, hassle people and stop people and incarcerate them for low-level offenses, but that they won't solve the most serious crimes, uh, the homicides. And and you know, many of these communities, uh, the the homicide clearance rates are exceedingly low as as the reverend said and so that is something that i think is often missed in sort of the, the 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 sort of narrative about this which is that folks in these communities are frustrated in two directions with the police it's that you know and and that we need to be responsive to both
0: reverend sierra thoughts
1: no i i agree and so this is when we're thinking of I think it it goes back to the bigger piece so currently we're in budget season in season in chicago and um we the city invested 85 million dollars of nearly a two billion dollar arp funding only 85 million dollars so i'm not going to even go off on a rant on that but just going back to the investment piece um if we're really serious about investing into a public health approach To address gun violence using evidence based strategies, um, there will be a huge investment not only into like the street outreach and victim services but also into housing. So one one of the things that um, I, I can't understand is that when we're looking into violence prevention strategies or even just any type of disaster relief strategy, if you're serious about stabilizing communities and investing in communities, you're gonna make sure that they have food and housing. And so the city is still not making the investment and, and answering uh, to the community on basic solutions, do people have access to housing? No, they don't have the resources. Do we have access? This is the number one problem in Chicago, and you're only giving eighty-five million dollars out of two billion dollars to gun violence prevention. Then no, the community, the community doesn't feel supported, and the community doesn't feel. The, we do not feel that the city is really making a meaningful investment and is really trying to attack this when there are hundreds of people dying every year.
0: Let's take a quick break. You're listening to Criminal Injustice and our guests are Reverend Sierra Bates Chamberlain of Live Free Chicago and Live Free Illinois and Thomas Abb, Senior Fellow at the Council on Criminal Justice. We'll be right back. Everyone, David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice. My guests are Reverend Sierra Bates Chamberlain of Live Free Chicago, Live Free Illinois, and Thomas Abt, He's Senior Fellow at the Council on Criminal Justice. Both of them are members of the Violent Crime Working Group at the Council, and we've been talking to them about their work, the reports that they have put out, which you can find from a link on our website, about the current spike in violent crime and murders particularly. Um, there's something in this report that I really think is is probably going to surprise people, and that is the role of social media uh, in causing uh, violence, uh, shooting incidents, even murders. I think when people envision these kinds of uh, uh, spikes in murders, and we, I think it's probably reasonably well known that this is a small number of people, uh, any one of whom could end up on either side. Of a murder, either as a, a perpetrator or a victim, we—I think we—you know—we envision this as some kind of incident happening out in the physical world. But many of these things are getting their start now on social media. That's what I learned from your report. Um, uh, can you talk about that a little bit, Thomas?
2: Sure. I don't know if the violence started on social media, but it certainly moved on to social media as people move on to social media and their interactions are increasingly on social media. So it's, it's not surprising that if, you know, um, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram are a greater and greater part of people's lives, that that's going to be a source of disputes and conflicts. But what is sort of something that the violence reduction field is really sort of trying to race to get ahead of is how quickly an incident that's triggered by social media often between two people or two groups that have had a long-standing rivalry can real can activate violence in, out on the street quite quickly and it can be something as concrete as one group um sending a uh posting a photo uh of themselves in another group's territory provoking them and saying why aren't you confronting us and then confrontations happen unfortunately
0: reverend sierra are you uh hearing the same thing from people in your circles
1: yeah i'll reiterate what Thomas said that um not not that it i mean in some cases social media has sparked some um tension but a lot of the times it can uh, sort of just um it can like 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 he made the example of somebody's in somebody else's territory or if there's a fight somebody records the fight um or oftentimes somebody is someone passed away there's disrespect towards the the lost loved one uh, that can just continue to amplify um, tension in communities. So, I mean, it is a growing, um, it is a, a, a growing thing that folks in the violence prevention field uh, will have to address and figure out ways to help uh, implement violence pre- prevention tools in social media. Uh,
0: Reverend Sierra, as far as violence prevention, this is now a whole field uh, of type of work field work, there's been some research, there's some data. I wonder if you can tell us about how well that works. I mean, I think when people read about uh, actors like violence interrupters, folks like that, they wonder, can that really work? Does that really do anything to stop violent confrontations? What's your experience? What does the data tell us?
1: I mean, I think it's not violence intervention alone. Um, I think the data points towards full wraparound services um, that's helping to reduce violence. And I think it's, especially when we're thinking about like street outreach. I'm a huge uh, supporter of seeing that folks. I'm in a of, of a multiple multiple messenger um approach which means that when we're wrapping services and we're supporting people whether it's your aunt your uncle that in the neighborhood that has respected relationships and also people who are directly impacted um that have relationships but i do believe that when we wrap support and love around people that the data also shows that that is what helps to uh center people back into community. So I'd like to give
0: both of you a chance to uh, tell listeners uh, what you think we really need to do now. Like I I, I keep coming back to this, uh, the work of the council generally and this group particularly are so important because they center on what to do now. There's a section in the report, a couple of sections, what to do right now. Uh, if you had to pick out just one or two things to address violent crime, uh, knowing that the other of you may pick different ones, uh, what would those one or two things be, Uh, Thomas?
2: Well, uh, as you mentioned in every one of our bulletins, we have, you know, two sections, we have what we know and what to do. And, uh, and so, In terms of what to do, I think I'd go with what we said in our third bulletin, which is if you're serious about this work, you have to do a serious problem assessment. If we're going to recognize that violence is hyper-concentrated among a small group of people and places, you got to do the work to know who those people and places are. And not just in a general way. You need to know These are the 200, 300, 500 individuals who are at the highest risk for gun violence in your city. And here are the, you know, six, seven, uh, 12 dozen locations that are the highest risk. And then you really have to put your resources towards those people and those places with a combination of empathy and accountability. It can't just be all empathy, it can't be, you know, all programming. But it can't be all enforcement, and I think it's really important that we have a balanced set of uh, approaches.
0: Reverend Sierra,
1: I will say two things. I will say one: the creation uh, cities have to invest in a coordinated infrastructure that that is rooted in the public health approach, um, and that not only addresses those who are highest risk, but addresses the entire community, because communities that are impacted by gun violence, everybody is impacted. Um, so cities have to have that infrastructure and the coordination needed. I think the second piece is, is the investment, um, to reiterate that, and investing in street outreach, investing in victim, victim services, and the investments can't be, this is what we have, there needs to be We need to have a real needs assessment and saying, what do we need? What do the street outreach uh, outworkers need, the victim services, uh, whoever? What do we need? And and, then invest in that budget based off of needs and not where we're throwing pennies at.
0: You sound, uh, what you're saying sounds very much to me like uh, something I've heard before, that the budget is a moral document and it tells us who we really are.
1: Absolutely. Thomas? You know, uh, just to build
2: on the reverend's remarks, um, I'm not a fan of uh, the sort of abolitionist or defund language, but there's an important point behind that, which is there is a massive funding disparity between our enforcement approaches and our community-based approaches, and we need to really scale up those community-based approaches. Uh, I also think that one of the things uh, that we talk about a lot, Reverend, in the, in the, in the working group, is how we're, we have such high expectations for these community-based programs, but many people who are working in these, uh, in these programs are really pretty unsupported. They work for low pay, they often have no benefits, um, and they're often doing incredibly dangerous work That is reactivating, you know, that's either traumatizing them or reactivating old trauma, and they don't have access to supports or services for that. And so one of the things is, is that, yes, we need to, you know, evaluate these programs, make sure they're effective, but we also need to invest in those programs and the people who do them to really have an honest accounting of what they can do.
0: Reverend Sierra, I'll bet that that rings a bell for you, too.
1: Yes, I I mean I agree with this. I think that in in general, the uh, another piece is there's just the lack of when there's a lack of respect or just like a lack of investment. Like there's this is why um, the street outreach workers or community organizers why they're disregarded and it's and it's okay from the powers that be or from the administrations. Uh, for folks not to have the resources needed. And then what tends to happen is, is that after a year or two and they're like, well, we don't see the drastic reduction in violence. So let's yes. trap it and not put any money into it when you really didn't fully support uh, or invest in the strategy um, as it was needed. And so this is where we really have to continue to push for not only the investment before the folks on the ground to be really invested in so that we can see the strategies will work if we properly invest in them and implement the strategies.
0: My guests have been Reverend Sierra Bates Chamberlain. She's executive director of Live Free Chicago, Live Free Illinois, where she works with Black congregations to create safe and economically viable and self-sustaining communities. Thomas Apt is Senior Fellow at the Council on Criminal Justice, a former criminal justice official in New York and Washington, D.C., and the author of Bleeding Out. They are both part of the Council's Violent Crime Working Group, and we have a link to the working group's latest report up on our website. I want to thank you both for being my guests here on Criminal Justice.
2: Pleasure to be with you.
0: And now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this story from the Texas Tribune, the Midland Reporter-Telegram, and the ABA Journal-News Online concerns lawyer Weldon Ralph Petty of Texas. As many listeners probably know, the republic, I mean the state, Texas is a state that generates a large percentage of all of the death penalty verdicts in the United States year in and year out. Some of the state's district attorneys in the state's biggest counties make a regular practice of asking juries for death sentences. Since 1976, when the U.S. Supreme Court okayed a capital punishment legal framework that it could live with, Texas, get this, Texas has executed 573 people. That is more than five times the number of its nearest state competitor, Virginia. And the courts of Texas regularly uphold these sentences. So what then is the deal with the Texas courts overturning the verdict and death sentence of Mr. Clinton Lee Young? Was he innocent? Is there new evidence that must be considered? Well, no, at least the court wasn't thinking about those things, which could come up later. The problem was lawyer Weldon Ralph Petty. To be more precise, lawyer Petty's willfully ignoring such basic rules of legal ethics that even a brand new first-year law student would know better. And the legal ethics course doesn't even come in law school until the second year. So let's start at the beginning. Defendant Young received a death sentence in 2003. Petty, as a lawyer, was working as part of the prosecution's team in that trial, which was held before Judge John Hyde. Petty was drafting motions for the prosecutors and giving them advice. At the same time, from 2001 to 2014, and then again in 2017 and 18, lawyer Petty was also working for the judges of Midland County, Texas, where Judge Hyde sits, and where the trial was being held. Among his jobs for the county judges, working on habeas corpus petitions, which are basically appeals to release the convicted person because of errors in their trials. During the trial of Mr. Young, before Judge Hyde, in which Lawyer Petty was assisting prosecutors, Lawyer Petty was getting paid by Judge Hyde for habeas corpus work. Uh Uh-oh, you say. Isn't that some kind of, maybe, conflict? A conflict of interest to be working for one side in a trial and also working for the judge? Hmm, you might have a point there. But you know what they say on those late-night TV commercials. Wait, there's more. Lawyer Petty's work for Judge Hyde included law clerk duties after the conclusion of Defendant Young's case. In that work, Lawyer Petty drafted an order for Judge Hyde to sign, recommending that Judge Hyde deny habeas corpus release to, wait for it, defendant Clinton Lee Young from the very trial verdict that he, lawyer Petty, had helped secure. In fact, Petty did this at the same time that he, quoting the ABA Journal here, at the same time that Petty was opposing habeas in his role as prosecutor. So you got that? He's part of the prosecution team, he's objecting to habeas, and he's writing the motion for the judge to reject the habeas. Yes, we could have actually made this a double whammy edition of bad behavior, lawyer and judge, and Judge Hyde would have deserved it, but he died in 2012, so we'll just leave that particular grave undisturbed. But wait, What do you mean, wait, again? Yes, because there's still more. When the current district attorney discovered, in 2019, what had happened in defendant Young's case, and this was all discovered after lawyer Petty had retired the district attorney not only recused the office from defendant Young's case, she also had to undertake an extensive look through all of the cases lawyer Petty had been involved with, and the district attorney ended up having to write to about 300 defendants, informing them of the conflict. Some of them may appeal to... As for Lawyer Petty, yes, he retired, yes, but he also submitted his resignation to the Texas bar. Sounds like a good thing. The resignation was accepted, assuring that one of the longest-running conflicts of interest in a prosecutor's career would definitely not resume ever, even in Texas. And that closes another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, and with it, another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed, if you haven't already, and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website, that's www.criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Go to the Ask Dave area on our website, and I'll see if I can give it a whack on the show. Remember, we are listener-supported. If you like what you hear and you want to help, do that by going to patreon.com criminalinjustice criminal injustice. We really, really do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next
1: time.